0: We started a couple of weeks ago this series called Following Jesus, Discovering the Extraordinary Within the Ordinary, and it works at several levels because John began the series talking about the ordinariness of these young teenage disciples that Jesus called. There was nothing really special about them, but he called them to an extraordinary mission. Then there's a reality that for every one of us here today, sometimes this idea of being a disciple of Jesus seems to be so otherworldly and so impossible to attain that we forget about the journey, We don't even attempt it, when in fact God can do amazing things through our ordinariness, when he pours his extraordinariness into us. Today we're going to talk about a subject that is as countercultural a subject as any of the topics of the series. And the topic is servanthood, it's self-denial. And I think you'll find fascinating the stories we're going to share together this morning. But we're going to begin with uh, Mark chapter 9, 30 to 35. And uh, John Van is going to be our scripture reader for the morning. John? There he comes. I was, I was hoping you were here, John. But what we do here is we stand for the reading of God's word because we believe it's sacred. And so stand face the middle of the room And for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 9 verses 30 to 35. John, when you're ready. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Thanks, John. You can have a seat. See, following Jesus becomes an adventure in our own Ordinary lives are routine lives where Jesus pours his impact all over us, and that's the story. Uh, we're going to talk about servanthood, but what I wanted to do uh, before we begin, and this is something we just decided to do for this series, is maybe ask you a question, and you can share the answer with someone seated next to you, assuming they're friendly. And the question of the day is this. I want you to think about this. Um, who is the most servant-hearted person you know? today? Again, who's the person that, when you think of this person, they're willing to give up, uh, surrender their rights, their situation for someone else's needs? Think about that for a second. I just want you to share the name. Can't be Jesus, okay? No Jesus. Jesus does that too. But who is it that you know in your life that's the most servant-hearted person you know? Again, share that with the person next to you. Uh, a few of you did. I think it's a tough question. Now, assuming our spouses are, you know, I, I understand you need to go there first, okay? Of course my wife is the most servant-hearted person I know, or your hubby. It's a tough value culturally To find someone who excels in servanthood, in self-denial. And it explains in part the difficulty of the disciples trying to uh, grasp this concept. Um, This call to servanthood and self-denial is truly a difficult teaching. And it's primarily within the first century culture, uh, which was heavily influenced by Hellenism the Roman Empire, in our culture of of secular humanism and consumerism, it's just difficult to grasp and even even more difficult to uh, live out. Um, When you're in the line at Costco or Winco, or you're about to head into the line, which line do you focus on? The longest or the shortest? Uh, We were at Costco um, this past week trying to find a parking spot. It's like hungry dogs finding a parking spot close to the building. And, you know, I'm sure there's been near-death experiences, near collisions in the Costco, Winco, you name it, mall, parking lot during the holiday season. It's kind of what we do, isn't it? I'm looking for the edge. I'm looking for the shortest line. I'm looking how I, to see how I can cut a corner. And so this teaching on self-denial and servanthood is as radical today as it was in Jesus' day. And these young disciples found it dis- difficult to grasp. Now, I want to walk you through, I think it's, it's uh, fascinating, there's three different times in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts his, what, what scholars call his passion, predicting his uh, suffering, death, and resurrection. They're in consecutive chapters, Mark 8, 9, and 10, and I'm, I want to walk through those as efficiently as we can today and, and show you that there's a, a prediction, a Uh, response by the disciples, and then a teaching that Jesus does. Here's the first passion prediction Um, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Okay, so here's the prediction, really twofold. Jesus will suffer and be rejected by the religious leadership, And secondly, be killed, and after three days, rise from the dead. This is the first time Jesus really extensively begins to teach his disciples about the future and that he would have to suffer in a variety of ways. He'd be rejected. He would have to serve. He would be killed, and three days later, rise from the dead. It says he spoke plainly about this. Now, check out the disciples' response in the few verses that follow. Basically, it's one of the disciples' response up Simon Peter and what he does is it's really his first denial check this out Jesus spoke plainly about this and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him it's one of the harshest Greek words describing vocabulary and usage of the language but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples he rebuked Peter And I don't know the last time anyone said this to you lately, get behind me Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Do not use that line in the line at Costco or Winco, okay? (laughs) Now, later, we're going to read, and, and later in the Mark's Gospel, all the Gospels, there's a much more famous denial of Peter. Remember this? It's crunch time just be- after Jesus is arrested. Peter denies ever knowing Jesus. But you could argue this is even more damaging to Peter's reputation because uh, that was a personal denial. This is Peter denying the legitimacy of Jesus' mission itself. He's discouraging Jesus' statement. Uh, you're not going to the cross. Again, Jesus has just said, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. That's the nature of this ministry. And Peter does not gently chide Jesus. Say, oh, oh, Jesus, come on, can't, we, can't you rethink your plan? It's a rebuke. And I don't want to put words in Peter's mouth, but let me. In 21st century terms, Peter says, Are you crazy? Are you crazy? You can't do that. A Messiah that suffers? It's unthinkable. Come on, you've got to conquer Rome. You're the man. You're a symbol of strength, not weakness. You put your own words into that encounter. Peter was beside himself, not comprehending at all what Jesus was saying about this suffering, this death, And then Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. And what what Jesus was implying was that Jesus was looking at this entire future ministry, this messianic event, with the wrong perspective, the popular expectation, if you will, the first century Jewish moral majority perception that everyone had figured out. When the Messiah came, he would come to kick butt and take names. But suddenly, Jesus is going against the grain of all of that, and his quest would be a quest to sacrifice, sacrifice, a quest to serve, a quest to suffer, and ultimately give his life so that others might live. It was a radical crossing of the wires. So then look what happens immediately after that uh, in, in Mark eight thirty four. Then Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It was a radical teaching, a countercultural teaching. And the lesson Jesus was communicating was twofold in this teachable moment. First of all, to follow Jesus is to deny yourself, be willing to sacrifice, and follow. Secondly, a surrendered life is a fulfilled life. Does that sound familiar in terms of anything, any commercial you've watched recently on social media or television? Does that reflect the, the value of our day? It's radical. See, respectfully submitted, denying self isn't just a seven-week experiment in the season of Lent where we give up chicken McNuggets. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Maybe it's a good symbol and it's a good start, but it's not the ultimate. Jesus lived out a lifestyle of servanthood, and it's a calling for him, it's a calling for us. It's a mentality. It's reshaping our identity around imitating Jesus where sacrificing service, serv- and being a servant in Jesus' name is the routine. In Mark's gospel, it's the first extensive reference to this teaching. It's, again, radical and countercultural. And I would, in defense of the disciples, they would have a hard time grasping this in the light of the expectations in the light of the cultural norms and priorities. And in the same way, I think we, we know this teaching, many of us, backwards and forwards. You need to serve. You need to sacrifice. It's what Jesus wants us to do. It is one of the most difficult teachings to implement in our daily routine. We're not sure of the time frame from one chapter to the next, but that was the story of chapter 8, the immediate Next, immediately, the next chapter 9 will say a short time later, there is a second passion prediction by Jesus. It was our passage of the day. John just read it. We won't reread it. But in that passion prediction, number two, if you're keeping score, Jesus promises that he'll be handed over to his opponents, be killed, and after three days, rise from the dead. Sound familiar? Right? Same thing. Less detail, same thing. This is the response of the disciples this time. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Picture that group of young disciples. Jesus has just pronounced it the second time. Going to Jerusalem, going to be arrested, religious leaders, suffer, die, rise. You've got to picture those disciples with that blank stare on their face, Perhaps. You know, it's the same look I had in my face my entire first semester in eighth grade during algebra. <laughs> Math and I went opposite directions in eighth grade. Can I hear an amen for all of you? non? I was so lost so early. It, although it, it, I developed a skill in that class, um, which I use to this day, and it's this lovable, clueless look And I perfected this look in eighth grade algebra where there were questions I had no idea, no idea what the answer was. By week two, I was so lost. And so when he asked the question, I I looked as if I was pondering a deeper algebraic truth. (laughs) And like, I, I may know, I may not know, but this is so important to me that my mind is going in places even the teacher can't fathom. And I never got called on. And maybe a couple times that semester, I backed into the right answer, thanks to a neighbor. And, and then I would look him boldly in the eyes, like I got this one, and he'd call on me. So that prof, that teacher never knew how stupid I really was at math, except we took tests from time to time and that was a giveaway. I don't know if you've ever had the look in the presence of some great mind or, or Maybe you understand, but I think perhaps in the disciples' case, they didn't want to understand because they knew the implications of agreeing with the teaching. Uh, This is not what we thought we were signing up for. You ever have that moment before God? I mean, I'm buying the Jesus and the cross thing, but when he asked me to deny self, take up my cross, follow him, be a servant and sacrifice, eh, I'm going to get to a ball game. You know, it's that kind of response. This is a not-so-holy moment, but it's a fascinating moment. Within a few hours of that moment where they gave this blank expression, I don't know, a few minutes, a few hours, we don't know. Again, Jesus and the disciples get to the house at which they're staying, and he asks this question. So what were you arguing about back there on the road? And you can see these young disciples saying, shoot, he hurt us. And it might have been acceptable had the disciples been arguing or debating about the nature of his death and his resurrection, or he had just recently healed a boy with an evil spirit. That would have been a great debate. How did he do that? Or he just fed 4,000 people with seven baskets full of bread and a few sardines. They could have been debating that. But you know what they were debating? Following the teaching on servanthood, they were arguing on the road who was the greatest. Can you picture that discussion? You think you're something. Well, I can do this. I can do that. The disciples' response was an argument over which disciple was the greatest. And so Jesus, again, patient, patient Jesus, sits down with the 12 in Mark 9:35. And said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, he didn't say any questions. But this message's lesson's familiar. And to summarize that mini-lesson, the lesson to follow Jesus, again, is twofold. The, to follow Jesus is to surrender the quest for first and committing to the value of Last. Secondly, it's to demonstrate a servant's attitude and behavior. Variations on the very same themes. If anyone wants to be first, you must be the very last. This is not think about being last. This is not contemplate being last. Discussing the merits of being last. Praying about being last. Be last. How many of you know people that go out of their way just to be last? Just to serve first? See, winning in Jesus' kingdom is about who serves. Christ's followers scramble to serve. Winning in his kingdom is all about surrendering. It's upside down. It's radical. It's countercultural. It's cool. It's not what we see, perhaps, as the institutional church carving out its niche in culture. It's all about serving. So I love whatever it was, 8,000 items, you know, there's someone a little bit OCD that's responsible for that total. You know what I mean? It's about giving what we have to others. Um, It's what matters. If we've sacrificed and served, see, it doesn't matter who's number one to a follower of Jesus. How often did you hear him explain that? Hey, you need to hustle. We need to be number one, you know? It's all about you. No. You know, I was a little chagrined last week as pastor chuck shared some i think fairly insensitive comments about the chicago bears um it's out of season you know i don't know where it was coming from but i want to demonstrate servant-heartedness to you today and self-denial and i'm not going to talk about the packers okay because i'm a follower of jesus And if you know anything about the bears, Jesus said the first will be last. And I'm, I'm okay with that. But if I wasn't a servant-hearted follower of Jesus, I would probably ask a question like this. What's the difference between a Green Bay Packers fan and a baby? Eventually the baby stops whining. But I would never do that. And so we talk about self-denial and we talk about servanthood and then we leave this building and we have to wait in line at Applebee's and begin kvetching. Or we get in that longer of four lines and try to see how we can sneak in front of the person next to us. Or we complain because our gifted, gifted child athlete isn't getting enough playing time Or or we look at someone else who has something bigger, newer, better, faster, cooler than ourselves, and we can't believe they got it before we did. It's what we do. It's how we're wired. And the wave of that cultural priority washes over us with every commercial we watch, with every person we know with a secular worldview, and it's so hard swimming upstream against that value of consumerism consumerism, entitlement, and secular humanism. Here's the third passion prediction. Again, I'm not going to read it from Mark chapter 10. Again, just it goes Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. Boom, boom, boom. The prediction, number three, predicts that Jesus will, this may sound familiar by now, go to Jerusalem and be delivered, be delivered to religious leaders. Check. He'll be condemned to death. This time, mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed. Check. After three days, rise from the dead. Check. Does it sound familiar? Absolutely. The three-passion prediction of Jesus. When Jesus chooses disciples like they and, and like ourselves, like them and like ourselves, he sees the potential but he also gets the ordinary. And so James and John, the brothers, the sons of thunder, come up to Jesus on the sly, and they ask him this. And They say this. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's not a good introductory statement in the light of the teaching. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Let, they say, And this is not James or John, it says James and John. It's an interesting nuance. They both say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. I don't think they catch the drift. James and John request places of preeminence, and the other ten disciples are angered. Again, just a little background in the first century culture, the places of honor. The first, the most, the preeminent place of honor was the seat on the right. The second place, the seat on the left. And James and John were asking for the number one and the number two places in Jesus' future kingdom. It's all about their status, their power under the new administration. And Jesus, don't you wonder what Jesus said, what he thought? Don't you wonder what he thinks about us? who've been at it, many of us, for 30, 40, 50 years, and we still find it difficult to grasp, let alone live out. Jesus says, you really don't know what you're asking. And then it gets better. Somehow the other 10 disciples get wind of James and John's request, and they're irate, and bang. They don't physically punch each other out. But you can imagine that verbal altercation. So Jesus, seizing this teachable moment, calls the disciples together again and says, and the twofold lesson, let me do that first, that greatness is defined by servanthood and Jesus' legacy will not be defined by power but by sacrifice. Does that ring a bell now? Third time, same teaching. Here's what he said. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." See, the king of kings and the lord of lords did not visit the planet to rule the earth or overthrow Rome. He came to serve, he came to sacrifice, he came to die, and to call everyone who followed him to the same lifestyle. Say what I say and do what I do. It's interesting, in ancient China, it was fashionable for wealthy men to grow their fingernails so long that their hands were unusable for basic daily tasks. This was the way they demonstrated they did not need to do anything for themselves. They had money, they had wealth, and there was always a servant there to wait on them. Now, this is not an anti-manicure pedigree, uh, pedicure, pedic- pedigree uh, conversation. I'm just saying, maybe some of us need to trim our nails, figuratively speaking, and dive into life the way Jesus called us. It's interesting that this revolutionary act of commitment is the call of every person who follows Jesus. I love these young guys because when you start studying the Gospels, we did this in anticipation of the series, over and over and over again. They just don't get it. Or Jesus has to say, oh, you have have little faith. One betrays, one denies. They're all over the charts. They don't know what, what to do, where to go. They're so like us. You know, Jesus wasn't suggesting that we abolish our ambition to succeed. Rather, he taught that our ambition as followers of Jesus is to be as aware of the journey as we are of the destination. And that following Jesus is a call to saturate our ambition to succeed with the ambition to serve. And I just had a look in the mirror every day this week. And ask, do I even get it any more than I did 20 years ago? I get it, but am I acting out on the call to serve? See, the dominant cultural value is success. And here's what we do, parents. We challenge our kids to get the best grades. We challenge our kids to be winners. We pay thousands of dollars so they can thrive in any and every way, in every and any extracurricular activity so they can be the best that they possibly can be. And what we do then, we as adults, uh, regardless of age, we gravitate towards the best. We gravitate toward the greatest, the cutest, the winners in life. And I don't want to have a debate about winning and losing and all that stuff, but where do our kids learn the dominant value of Jesus that declares to be the greatest, of that great significance begins with serving and denying ourselves? Where do they get those lessons? And the tsunami of entitlement and consumerism. And you know the answer, that's very simple. You parents, and how you live out the value of sacrifice and servanthood, and how from time to time they see you denying yourself in the name of Jesus. That's where it begins. It will be taught here too. It's one of the reasons I think we underestimate the significance of the church today in a secular culture with a secular worldview. They will learn that value here first and foremost above all values. Because we want these kids, these babies, when they're old enough to understand what following Jesus looks like every day in ways that imitate him that will stand radically in opposition to the wave of culture. And I would encourage you this is not some radical moment where you have to totally throw everything away that matters but begin with those small symbolic acts begin to assimilate into this understanding of servanthood and self-denial ask yourself where you park where do you park in parking lots how much does it mean to you that you're within two stalls of that store what happens when you're in a line that's not moving well Etc., etc. You can draw your own conclusions of your own situations. Do we make time for people that are struggling? Are we quick to criticize because of our lofty opinion of ourselves? Begin with those simple acts and see what God does. And I hope the Spirit even now affirms your sacrificial acts this past week. If you served, if you gave of yourself, if you surrendered, if you you were denying self in some way, shape, or form. This is an adventure in missing the point for these disciples. But I wonder sometimes about myself. Is it my entire adulthood I'm missing the point, at least to a degree? The rest of the story of the 12 is the story that over the next three years, these 12 young men continued to have this three-step-forward, two-step-back response to the teachings of Jesus. But over time, over time, over time, they begin to get it. And they begin to look more and more like Jesus. And then this event called Pentecost came, and the Spirit came on them and it rocked their world, and then they began to rock everyone else's world. And they went to the four corners of the earth as sacrificial acts, giving up their own agenda, their own vocational goals. Because they understood once they'd seen their Savior, their rabbi, Jesus, their friend, die, they got it. And they wanted to be just like Jesus. You know, this journey of discipleship begins with a first step of commitment. If, and we want to do this more often than we have in the past. But if you've never committed to Jesus, you don't, you've never committed to say, I believe in him, I want him to forgive my sins, I want to be a believer and a follower, this is a great moment for that. Just simply say in a quick prayer in your heart, in your mind, Jesus, I give you all that I am. I want to follow in your footsteps. I believe you are who you claim to be. And in that moment, you cross a line that has eternal implications and has implications for you to begin to live this extraordinary life even in the midst of your ordinary circumstances. Let me give you the postscript. Jesus said as part of this last, the third passion prediction and the teaching, the disciple response, he said to James and John, listen, fellas, You want the places of preeminence. You have no idea what you're asking for. You want the best seats in my kingdom. You know what? They're not even mine to give. You don't get it. But you will experience some of the things I experience. In so many words, he's saying, you may suffer for my cause. You may have to give up for my cause. And if you know the story of the disciples, the rest of the story Eventually they understood and they bought in and virtually every one of them, with one exception or two, ended up giving their lives. Literally sacrificing their lives. Whether it be an upside down cross or a beating, a stoning, or death by sword. James was the first to go. Acts chapter 12 just gives, it's a two verse snippet of a story that because Herod the great Herod the Great's grandson had a problem with Christians. He went, sought out James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, and he put him to death by the sword. And that young man was never more like Jesus as he went to his death rather than give up his commitment to Jesus rather than say it's not that important, I don't want to go overboard, he gave up everything, his life, for the sake of the cause. I don't think that's going to happen to most of us. Death by sword, let's be realistic. But what is Jesus calling you to do and to be? What situation might you have to give in, give up, Step back. Give more than you think you need to give. Each week we want you to reflect on something as we leave. And this week's step in following Jesus is about service. And I think where it has to begin is first we have to pray for a heart to serve Jesus. This is not natural. It's supernatural. It goes against the grain of everything we're taught and trained in the culturally. And then pray for an opportunity to serve Jesus. And then again, it, it's not just about praying, discussing, contemplating. Then take the opportunity to serve the cause of Jesus. It may be in an organization. It may be in a relationship. It may be attitudinal. But look for those moments this week where you can really make a difference. And when you do, in that, just in that moment, you're just like Jesus. And you're making a difference for the cause of Christ. Here's what I love about being a follower of Jesus. God is ready to bring the extraordinary into our ordinary if we put into action his radical invitation to serve and deny ourselves. So let's just close and pray for the opportunities that we know are inevitable this week where we can be just like Jesus in serving and denying ourselves and sacrificing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you very humbly here because uh, often our life of faith is an adventure in missing the point. And this point is really difficult for us to consistently live out. But Lord, I pray that your spirit might do something supernatural in hearts and minds, in everyone in this room, to just implant the seed of self-denial and servanthood, to help us take on a new vision, to look at people differently, situations and circumstances, and instead of being the first to critique, the first to pigeonhole, we are the first to step out of our comfort zone and be willing to take a stand, be willing to serve, be willing to get close to the urgency. Father, we, we can't do it on our own. And so we trust in the power of your Spirit in the presence of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.